Thank you, Jack, for that ministry of music. Appreciate that very much. You may notice there's no handout tonight, so you're going to need to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126. 126. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. We've got a few Bibles located directly underneath you in the pew racks. That's Psalm 126 we're in tonight. And the title of my message is Hope and Joy in the Midst of Trouble. And uh, the way I came upon this psalm is actually... There's a song that I've known for about 20 years that's really precious to me, and it's really based on this psalm, but I'm going to get to that at the very end of, of this message. Um, for now, though, um, in order to understand why I'm calling it Joy and Hope in the Midst of Trouble, you really have to read the psalm to understand what it's saying, of course. It's not a very long one, so it won't take us long, but uh, I want to read this in its entirety so that you can hear it all together, and then we'll go through and break it apart a little bit explain it, apply it, and the like. So here we are, Psalm 126, verses 1 through, through 6. It says, A Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with him. So that's our psalm for tonight. It's not very long. Again, only six verses. But in this passage, we see a combination of two thoughts. This is what I want you to see as you're looking down at your Bible. So make sure you're looking. Verses 1 through 3 belong together, and verses 4 through 6 belong together. There are two major sections here. Verses 1 through 3 gives us this picture of someone or a group of people who are rejoicing over how God has rescued them and restored them. There is this general sense of joy and celebration and rest. That's verses 1 through 3. And then yet, in verses 4 through 6, there is also this request being made to God. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, as if things are not yet resolved. There is still a sense that this psalmist is missing something, he's asking for something, and yet there's hope in this request. There's this sense that God will still come through and bring joy once again. That's the summary of our passage tonight, and the key word is restore. So you see that there if you look in verse 1 and also verse 4, restore. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, that's verse 1, and then verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. So in the psalm, we see these two major ideas put together. On the one hand, the psalmist expresses joy for God's deliverance, verses 1 through 3. And yet on the other, we see he's still longing for a future joy and deliverance. It's this very interesting combination of thoughts that makes this psalm so unique. For it almost seems like the two sections are out of order, at least as I read them. You'd almost expect verses 4 through 6 to come first with the psalmist's uh, plea for deliverance. And then maybe you'd have verses 1 through 3 to follow that, where the deliverance has finally come. 
That's normally how we'd expect this to go. But you have this unexpected order of things where it's almost this sense of peace at first and then a request. So how do we make sense of that? What's the significance that we can learn from this? We'll get to that in, in a moment. Um, what I want you to see, though, in this entire psalm is that even though it's filled with joy and uplifting and hopeful language, it's still clear that something is not quite right in the psalmist's life. For he says in verse 4, and I want you to note this, he says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. That's a prayer, okay? It's a prayer he's calling out to God. Something clearly isn't right. We don't know what exactly that is, but he's saying, in a very generic sense, restore our fortunes, O Lord. And then twice in verses 5 and 6, it makes reference to people weeping. He says, those who sow in tears and he who goes out weeping. So those kinds of words would suggest that he or his people or both are going through some pretty difficult and troubling times. And yet, as I said, despite that, this does not strike us as a depressing psalm at all. And in fact, you could probably think of some other psalms that occur earlier in the book that seem to be a little bit more serious in tone, that are a little bit more downcast, where he says, you know, why are you downcast, O my soul? This doesn't have that same vibe to it. This is a lot more uplifting. It's a lot more hopeful. And, And that is what makes this unique from some of the other psalms where there's trouble involved, where you can see there's something wrong going on. This author is very hopeful. The author says things like, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy, and the Lord has done great things for us. And still, at the end, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. So what I want you to see tonight is that this author has this uncommon reaction to a common problem. That is to say, all of us know what it's like to have unresolved or ongoing troubles. But it is rare to hear someone who has this kind of joy that we're reading right in front of us and to have this kind of hope while we're going through it. Any of us can go through troubles, right? Any of us can experience something that's very difficult and weighs us down. But not many of us, I'd say, including myself, respond with this kind of attitude. Not just the words, because we all know how to say praise God, you know, in the midst of anything. We can say the words. But to have this kind of uplifting, hopeful mindset that's contained in these short six verses is uncommon. It's uncommon. He's extremely hopeful. So the real question I want to ask us tonight is, How can we have this kind of heart attitude even when we are facing ongoing or unresolved problems in life? And I think this text will provide us with two answers. And they're found in those two sections, which I already gave you, verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. Here they are. Verses 1 through 3 gives us this answer. To have this kind of heart attitude in the midst of trouble, we should, number one, develop a heart that remembers and praises God for how he has delivered us in the past. Let me say that again. To have this heart of joy and hope, we are to first have a heart that remembers and praises God for the way in which he's delivered us in the past. And secondly, in verses 4 through 6, second way that we can have this same kind of mindset is that we maintain a strong faith 
in God and confidence in his ability to deliver. So a heart that remembers and a strong faith in God in his ability to save us. So let's unpack these two thoughts together. As I said, the first way that we can have more joy and hope uh, is by recalling and thanking God for how he's delivered us in the past. Let me just reread verses 1 through 3. It says, a song of ascents, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. So here the psalmist tells of God's saving acts of the past. We see at the, the heading of this psalm, it says a song of ascents, right? Uh, you see that at the top. What does that mean? Well, as best as I can tell from commentaries and different things, the song of ascents are a special group of psalms comprising Psalms 120 through 134, and you can kind of flip through and see that. They're called Songs of Ascent because the city of Jerusalem is located on a high hill. And Jews traveling to Jerusalem for one of the main annual Jewish festivals traditionally sang these songs on the ascent on the uphill road to the city. So you can imagine they are using this song to do the exact thing that it's commanding them to do, to recount the goodness of the Lord. And you can imagine if you are in this group of people walking up that hill to Jerusalem, singing this, it's, it's a verbal and auditory reminder to praise God for all that he has done in the past, if they're singing this as they go. And notice here that the psalm not only recounts what God did in the past, but also how the psalmist felt during that time of deliverance. One commentary by Tremper Longman says that it's like the psalmist is reliving this time in his past. These first three verses are full of vivid sensory pictures. It says, quote, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, here it is, we were like those who dream. We were like those who dream. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before. People were saying, it's, it's like I'm in a dream. You know, it's like I was dreaming. It's so good. I can't believe this is actually happening to me. That's what he's saying. He's not saying he's dreaming now and, and thinking about the past. He's saying, when I went through it back then, it was like I was in a dream. It was that amazing. And then it says, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Uh, very vivid pictures here. And I want to ask you, have you ever sat down before and just thought about a happy memory in your past? Have you ever thought about it in such a degree that, that it just almost comes to life? It's like you close your eyes and you're there once again. Um, maybe it was something that, that you were doing together as a family. Maybe it's a time God delivered you from something really uh, terrible and at that moment you just felt this relief. Maybe it's just some sort of memory that you'll never forget. But have you ever closed your eyes and reflected on it in such a way like it was like you were there all over again? Let's do this, if you haven't before. Tonight, I want you just to pause for a moment, and I want you to think particularly of a, of a happy time in life, a time of celebration, a time of relief, a time of rejoicing. Okay, so just pause. If you want to close your eyes, think about that. What's your memory? Now, as you remember that, imagine what that moment was like. Where were you? 
What did it feel like? Who were you with? What was the day like? Do you remember? Okay, now if you have all that in your mind, I want you to do one final thing. Do this. Remember that it was God who gave you that kind of joy. God did it. And that last step, while it sounds simple, is very important. And here's why. Because it can be relatively easy for us to remember a happy memory in our life. Most of us can recall a moment like that. For example, um, I'll give you this. While the pandemic was going on and, and I was working in my basement, I was listening to these ocean sounds on my computer and, and I just paused, I closed my eyes, and suddenly I was transported to the beach, just where I was. And here I am in my, my dingy basement, poorly lit and everything, and I'm in front of a computer, but I close my eyes and it's like I'm back there. And boy, was that amazing, just to remember and... I think I even had a fan on me, and I was like, oh, this is the ocean air right here. This is what it is. I hear it. You know, there's seagulls, everything. It was, it was wonderful. But you know what my next thought was? Oh, I can't be there right now. Man, I missed that time. Here I am stuck here in my basement. The world's locked down. I can't even be there, right? Do you see what I just did? I took a happy thought. I took something that God blessed me with, and I turned it into a complaint. How often do we do that? I tell you, I do it a lot. If I, if I could rattle off a list of different memories and things that I'm thankful for, just like I had you do tonight, I bet there's at least one time for each of those memories for me where I've thought, oh, I, I love that so much. It's such a shame. I wish I could go back there. I can't believe I can't go back there now. Uh, you, you guys have heard me talk your ears off about Sing when Sarah and I went there three years ago to this conference, and it was a, a worship music conference uh, held by the Gettys in Nashville. It was amazing. Learned so many things that I've taken with me. And there's so many years ever since that I'm like, oh, I you know, wish I could go back. Why do I think that way? That's terrible. Why can't I just stop and say, thank you, God, for that, and leave it at that, Right? We're so good at doing that, of just taking a memory that, that is a blessing from God and then saying, oh, but I want more. I want more. Notice this psalmist doesn't do that. He's talking about something in the past, whatever that may be. He's saying, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. And it was said among everybody who saw us, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Notice how that ends, by the way, in verse 3. Not we were glad. We are. Right? He's not saying back then, God did all this stuff for me. I was so glad then. Nothing like what I am today, but I was then. No, he's saying the Lord has done great things for us. And what? We are. We are glad. That's showing an attitude that I would say goes well beyond our normal reaction. I know it goes, I can only speak for myself, but I know it goes beyond the way I normally re react to memories like that. I, I normally don't say we are glad. I'm saying, oh, I was so glad back then. No, God has done great things for us. And whatever that memory was that you remembered tonight or memories, remember this, God did it. The Lord has done great things for you. 
and you were glad. So here's what you've got to do with this as an exercise, right? We're asking, how can you have this kind of attitude like we see in the psalmist? It means that the next time you have that kind of thought where you're just sitting there, you're going about your day, you pause and you remember something. You remember it vividly. You remember a wonderful time in your life. And that moment that you're tempted to say, oh, if only I could be back there, pause and say, no, wait. Before I even go back to that way of thinking, say, the Lord did this. This is God's blessing to me. If I'm remembering something that I really am fond about and, and I remember fondly, that is God's doing in my life. I need to just stop and go no further than just to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that. And that's one way we can have this attitude. Can I just suggest this to you? If you're lacking joy tonight, I imagine it's not because God hasn't done great things for you. I don't think that's the issue. And even further, I don't think the problem is that you can't remember what God has done for you. I think that the majority of us in this room, when I asked you to stop, you could think of something. I think we can think of things. But rather, I think our biggest problem is that we fail to reflect correctly on the good things that God has done. And to not lead that into a complaint, but just to say, thank you, God. The psalmist's very attitude is changed by the way that he remembers these past events. The Lord has done great things for me, and I am glad. Here's the good thing, though, that we notice from this text. Even if we forget the ways that God has been good to us, the good news is we can ask others. And others can help us to remember. For notice what it says in this psalm, specifically verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. So this is an, out, an outside group talking about the Israelites, talking about the Jewish people. They're noticing it. The Lord's done great things for them. So you can see that God's goodness on his people was so dramatic that even others could see it. That served as further testimony that the Lord was, in fact, good to his people. So, too, I imagine that if you ask someone who knows you well, they could tell you the Lord has done great things for you and help you recall some examples. So how do you have a heart of joy and hope, even if life currently isn't perfect? Remember, I was saying it's important that we realize that even though there's lots of hope and joy in the psalm, his life is not perfect. He is going through some troubles. It's just that it's really hard to detect because his attitude is so different than ours. Here's how we can have that same attitude. Remember. Remember and give thanks. And if you're having trouble remembering, have your friends, your spouse, your kids, somebody who knows you well, to come alongside you and ask them, please remind me of the ways God has been good to me. And then they can say, just like in this psalm, the Lord's done great things for you, for them. And we are glad. So that's the first way we can have joy and hope, even in the midst of ongoing troubles. But our text gives us one more way that we can achieve this same joy and hope. And that is we maintain a strong faith in God and confidence in his ability to deliver. Let's read verses 4 through 6. So again, go back to your text, look down. Let's read this together, 4 through 6. 
And it says this, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So again, we just concluded verses 1 through 3, where the psalmist recalled how God had delivered him in the past. And now he's going to make this request, a petition to God, asking him to deliver, even in his present difficult circumstances. But as he does so, we can see that his words are fully saturated in and shaped by this strong faith in God. These are not words of a man who is uncertain or unsure. Rather, he expresses confidence in his God's power to deliver. And that's expressed in words such as, quote, those who sow in tears shall, notice that word shall, shall reap with shouts of joy. And it says later, he who goes on weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. There is this confidence here in his words that is unwavering. He's not saying perhaps you'll come home with shouts of joy. He's saying you shall. But first, he begins by saying, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now here in Lebanon County, uh, we don't know what streams in the Negev are. There might be some streams right now with all the, uh, the rain that's going on out in the, the back lot here. But um, if you were in my Sunday school class in the summer last year on the Holy Lands, maybe you might remember something about it. The Negev Desert is in the southern part of Israel, and there are these segments of land called wadis. And a wadi is simply a valley or a ravine or a channel that's usually in the desert and that's usually dry, except in the rainy season. And so concerning this verse, verse 4, um, the Bible background commentary, which I was reading, helps us to understand what's being said here. And let me quote that for you. It says, the wadis of Palestine are similar to overflowing rivers in the rainy season. However, they have little or no water during the summer season, precisely the time when water is most needed. In the arid desert region south of Jerusalem, the periodic flooding of these wadis brought relief and life. And that's the image that's being portrayed here in Psalm 126. The psalmist is saying, restore our fortunes, O Lord, just like this dry wadi, just like this desert land, this valley that's normally got nothing in it. May you give life to us once again, just like the rains that can bring life back to this dry valley and make that dry channel a river once again. That's what the psalmist is asking. But notice that the faith that's expressed even in this analogy um, is, is strong based on his experience. He has seen God provide waters for the desert valleys. He's not asking for something that's never been done. Okay, he's seen it in his life. And it's a dramatic example. So right now, outside, it's raining, right? But we have green grass. We're, we're not lacking in water at the current moment. Okay, so this is not all that uncommon. But there's something dramatic about the picture he's using here because in the middle of this valley, it would have normally been dry. And then in these rainy seasons, it could suddenly downpour. There could be slides of dirt that are sliding down and almost some floods that even potentially threaten um, any life that's at the bottom of this particular valley. It's so dramatic in when it rains that it, it, it seems like, and it is, 
a miraculous work of God. And he's saying just like that in our own life, we could have moments that seem so dry, where we've had disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, like a desert. You're looking across your past or recent past and saying, God, there's been nothing good for me lately. It's like everything's dried up. It's like there's nothing there for me to cling to. No signs of life. It's really hard for me to see your goodness in this moment. But he's saying, God, I've seen you do miraculous things. I've seen you turn a dry desert into a flowing river. And if you can do that, if I've seen you do that in my life, then you can certainly restore me. That's the word picture that's here in this text. And I'm telling you, those words are strong words of faith. That's not an uncertain man writing these words. He's saying, I know it. In this dry land that I've seen, it's an illustration of your goodness. And I know that if you can do that in nature, you can do that for me. But then he continues this agricultural thought in the remaining two verses, verses 5 through 6. He says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Again, a farming analogy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So the psalmist expresses confidence that those who weep now will one day rejoice. And for those who are like terrified farmers, looking out at their field and seeing only a dry desert, one day, the psalmist says, their crops will be bountiful. And they will bring home an abundance of grain, overflowing and plentiful. That's a statement of the psalmist's hope about God's deliverance and his restoration and his provision. There's also something present here that we won't see in English, but I want to just point out to you in Hebrew. And again, my Hebrew is like, I, I just got through Hebrew while I was in seminary. That is very, very difficult. I'm not saying I know this at all. It's, it took a commentary to point this out to me, and then I was able to kind of go back and verify it. So again, this is not coming from me, but again, the same commentary I referenced earlier by Tremper Longman, he says this, both the going forth and the coming home are stressed by a doubling of the verb, by a doubling of the verb. So let me read to you what this would sound like literally if we just kind of literally translate this in, in English. Verse 6 would read this way, to go out, he goes out weeping. Do you hear that? So in Hebrew, that verb is doubled. To go out, he goes out weeping, carrying the seeds for sowing. And then he does it again. It says then, and to return, he will return with the songs of joy carrying his sheaves. Again, he says, and to return, he will return with songs of joy. So in Hebrew, when a verb is doubled, it usually is for emphasis. So a good way to represent that in English here, because we don't do that, we don't say verbs twice, we would say, he who surely goes forth weeping will surely come home with shouts of joy. He who surely goes forth weeping will surely come home with shouts of joy. It's an emphasis of certainty. That's what I want you to see. The reason that the psalmist can respond to his current trouble with such joy and hope is because he has an incredibly strong faith in God's power and act to act and deliver. And to have that same joy and hope in our own situation, we too need to have that strong faith as well. 
You know, I, I know in the past we've been very wary of Christian teachers and people we see on TV who say that we really need to have a strong faith uh, because of the, the type of language that they've used. It's been abused in the past, and, and you see a lot of false teachers teaching that way. For example, um, there are false teachers who say things like, if you just have enough faith, you can be healed of this cancer, or you can be walking again, or all these other miraculous things, the Benny Hins of this world, right? We've all heard of false faith healers in the world who take advantage of people and then claim that if you didn't get healed, well, it must have been because you didn't have enough faith, right? It, that, that's their out. That's the, how they, they blame others for it. So that kind of teaching should be avoided. It's false. I want to make that clear. However, at the same time, we also have to be careful that in calling that out as false, that we don't throw out what the Bible actually says about faith. And one of those things is that it is possible for Christians to have different levels of faith. Okay? That's something the Bible affirms. The Bible says that we can actually fluctuate in our levels of faith. And we're encouraged to stay strong in our faith and not to doubt. We're told that there are people who have the gift of faith, just like there are other spiritual gifts, people who excel at that. Okay? So let me just give you a few passages that speak to this, the idea of different levels of faith. James 1, 5 through 8 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith and with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here what I want you to see is that it's possible to ask God for wisdom, but to not really believe that God will grant it to us. We might actually not be sure, or we can outright doubt that God will keep his promise. And we're encouraged here clearly to not doubt. Next, secondly, in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus' command to Peter to believe and not doubt, Matthew 14, 25 through 33. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him and said, Oh, you of what? Little faith. Little faith. Why did you doubt? That's what Jesus says to him. And then they got into the boat and the wind ceased. So here again, Jesus cites the reason for Peter's sinking. He failed to believe that Jesus would enable him to walk on the water in that instance where Jesus commanded him to. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Finally, this is the last example I'll give. Mark 9, 24, when Jesus assures a father that he's able to heal his child and asks if he believes, and we know this quote, a lot of us do, I'm sure, Mark 9, 24, the father says, I believe, help my unbelief, help my unbelief. So there the father knows that his level of faith 
is not where it should be, and he asks Jesus to increase his faith. Now, none of these verses, by the way, are saying that our faith is able to accomplish any of these miraculous things. That's important to know. Our faith does not have intrinsic power in it. However, we do see repeated verses that implore us, command us to have faith and to believe in the promises of God. We do see in these examples that it's possible for us to either be strong in our faith or to be weak in our faith. So I think that's a good question for you to reflect on tonight. If you were to do a bit of self-evaluation, how strong is your faith? How strong is your faith? We see this played out in our own lives. When our faith is weak, it impacts the way we speak about God. We complain more. We despair more. We give thanks less. We cling less to the promises of God or to the Word of God less. But compare that to our passage tonight and specifically to verses 4 through 6 of the psalm. Notice again how this psalmist is not unsure of God's deliverance. He's not like Peter. He's not doubtful. He's confident. Let's read it again, verses 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. See also that strong faith doesn't preclude asking God and coming to God with a request. Do you know that? It doesn't mean that if you have strong faith that therefore you don't have to bring petitions to the Lord or you're somehow past that, okay? Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who walk or who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with him. That is a far different response than if he had just said, restore me, O God, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I don't know if you're going to come through for me. You're probably not even listening to me right now. I don't think there's any hope at all, but God, if you're there, please answer this. No, that's not, that's not what he sounds like. That would be a prayer of little faith. But instead, this author of Psalm 126 looks back on how God has rescued him in the past, and he believes in God's promises, and he has confident hope that God will save once again. Now, having faith doesn't always mean that God removes every obstacle in the way that we might expect. Sometimes God restores our fortunes in this life, and sometimes we experience hardships in this world so that the full restoration will not happen until we are with the Lord in glory in heaven. So having faith doesn't mean that we have this idea that God will always cause us to win the game or always get a raise or always win every battle. But strong faith does mean that I believe that God will either restore or deliver me no matter if it's in this life or the next. It matters it means that I believe that he is always good, no matter what, and I cling with hope to a better future that will come to me, again, either in this life or when Christ returns. That's what a strong faith looks like. Now, with this in mind, I think one of the best passages I could tie into this psalm is Job, uh, Job chapter 42. You might remember that last week I taught on Job chapter 1, and I think this ties in so well. So turn there. This is the only other place I'll have you turn. Keep your finger in Psalm 126, but I want you to go to Job 42. This is the end of the story, and I trust you know the story of Job. I'm not going to recount all that here, but obviously some terrible things to happen to Job in the beginning, 
and there's a lot of questioning that goes on in the bulk of the, that book. But here at the end, we see how things are, re, are restored. And I want you to especially pay close attention to the language that's used and how it's similar, um, specifically in verse 10, to the psalm we're studying tonight. Okay, so let's start in verse 7 of Job 42 and go to verse 17. It says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the uh, Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Hear that language, that similarity of language, when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy, and they comforted him with all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep. Okay, you remember the illustration about the sheep? How many did he have last week? 7,000. How many does he have here? 14,000. Okay, 6,000 camels. How many did he have last time? 3,000. 6,000 camels. 1,000 yoke of oxen. You see the pattern here. It's doubled. 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Now that's not doubled. How many sons and daughters did he have last time? It was the same amount. Seven sons, three daughters. And he restored them, as it were. Obviously not bringing them back from the dead. Not the same daughters and sons, but he restored Job's family, as it were. And he called the name of his first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. We talked about that last week. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. Wouldn't that be wonderful? To die an old man full of days and all that means. That's what the Lord did for Job. And again, I want you to see specifically verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job. That's the same word that's used here in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. I see a very neat connection between Job and Psalm 126. And again, you know this. I'm not saying that this is a promise that all of our stuff is going to be doubled or whatever. You know that. That's not what this is saying. It's what happened in Job's case. But I think it's really neat how this language matches. There's no indication or reason to believe that Job wrote this psalm. I'm not saying that. But you, can you imagine Job singing this psalm? Now turn back to 126, okay? I want you to just picture this for a moment. Just imagine it, okay? Humor me for a moment. As you're back in Psalm 126, now imagine Job in heaven singing this psalm. And yes, they were sung, right? Imagine Job singing this from the mouth of Job. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, 
we were like those who dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter. This is Job, right? At the end of his days, an old man full of days, seeing all of this restored. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. Imagine him telling his children that, right? The Lord's done great things for us, daughters and sons, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, and those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Again, I'm not saying that Job wrote that psalm, not at all. Can you see how he, as a worshiper, just like you and I, could say those words? This is what I'm telling you. People, if you go through something that's incredibly, incredibly difficult, that you're thinking, I don't know how I could ever possibly get past this. I don't know how this loss will ever leave me. I don't know how this will ever get out of my mind. I don't know how I could recover and, and continue to live. Job's fortunes were restored. He could say these words from a perspective of having gone through all that and say, the Lord's been good to me. The Lord's done great things for us. And we're glad. We're so glad. It doesn't remove all the pain that you once felt. It doesn't take away the fact that he lost his kids or that he lost all of his stuff or that he went through all of those things. But I'm saying here's proof that God can restore us in such a way that we can smile again. It's possible. I'm saying to you tonight that if you're going through something really difficult and you can't imagine how you could ever possibly get past it, look to this psalm. If you say, I can't imagine ever saying these words, think of Job. Think of all that and how long that crying out to God lasts. How many chapters? And yet, the Lord restored him. He can restore you too. What do we learn? We learn that if, if, we, if we remember what God has done for us in the past, verses 1 through 3, remember that. We can have a confident faith that trusts in God for the future. But even if our troubles are still ongoing, those memories and that faith and a God who delivers can get us through. I said in the beginning that there was a song that I heard 20 years ago um, that has meant a lot to me. And that's actually what caused me to pick this psalm before I even studied it and knew what it was about, before any of this meant anything to me. And I didn't realize at the time that... Uh, the song is almost a complete copy of the psalm and meant so much to me. I, I emailed the authors, um, didn't think they'd respond. They live in the UK and they sent me back the sheet music just yesterday morning. So I thought, we gotta, we gotta sing this. So Sarah and I are gonna sing this song together if I can pull myself together. I don't know if that's possible. But um, you just listen, okay? We're gonna have the lyrics come down off the 
for the screen here and you can hear us sing. So, Sarah. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion We were like those in a dream Our mouths were filled with laughter And our tongues with songs of joy Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. Help us, O Lord, to remember your works, That your name may be honored again. The Oh 
restore our fortunes pray that you would restore us where we are if we're hurting tonight may we remember your goodness may we pause to give you the praise and the credit may you give us a strong faith that trusts in your goodness and the future before us we thank you for our word your word that brings us this hope we ask that you would be with our time of fellowship tonight in jesus name amen <laughs> 